Welcome to Bedtime Stories. I'm Lori Mack. Tonight we will be enjoying Black Beauty by Anna Sewell, chapters 7, 8, and 9. Chapter 7, Ginger. One day when Ginger and I were standing alone in the shade, we had a great deal of talk. She wanted to know all about my bringing up and breaking in, and I told her, well, she said. If I had had your bringing up, I might have had as good a temper as you, but now I don't believe I ever shall. Why not? I said. Oh, because it has been all so different with me, she replied. I never had anyone, horse or man, that was kind to me or that I cared to please, for in the first place I was taken from my mother as soon as I was weaned and put with a lot of other young colts. None of them cared for me, and I cared for none of them. There was no kind master like yours to look after me and talk to me and bring me nice things to eat. The man that had the care of us never gave me a kind word in my life. I do not mean that he ill-used me, but he did not care for us one bit further than to see that we had plenty to eat and shelter in the winter. A footpath ran through our field, and very often the great boys passing through would fling stones to make us gallop. I was never hit, but one fine young colt was badly cut in the face, and I should think it would be a scar for life. We did not care for them, but, of course, it made us more wild, and we settled it in our minds that boys were our enemies. We had very good fun in the free meadows, galloping up and down and chasing each other round and round the field, then standing still under the shade of the trees. But when it came to breaking in, that was a bad time for me. Several men came to catch me, and when at last they closed me in at one corner of the field, one caught me by the forelock, another caught me by the nose, and held it so tight I could hardly draw my breath. Then another took my under jaw in his hard hand and wrenched my mouth open and so by force they got on the halter and the bar into my mouth then one dragged me along by the halter another flogging behind and this was the first experience I had of men's kindness it was all force they did not give me a chance to know what they wanted I was high-bred, and I had a great deal of spirit, and was very wild, no doubt, and gave them, I dare say, plenty of trouble, but then it was dreadful to be shut up in a stall all day, day after day, instead of having my liberty, and I fretted and pined and wanted to get loose. You know yourself, it's bad enough when you have a kind master and plenty of coaxing, but there was nothing of that sort for me. There was one the old master, Mr. Ryder, who I think could have brought me round and could have done anything with me. But he had given up all the hard part of the trade to his son and to another experienced man, and he only came at times to oversee. His son was a strong, tall, bold man. They called him Samson. And he used to boast that he never had found a horse that he could, that could throw him. There was no gentleness in him, as there was in his father, but only hardness. A hard voice, a hard eye, a hard hand, and I felt from the first that what he wanted was to wear all the spirit out of me and just make me into a quiet, humble, obedient piece of horseflesh. 
Horse flesh. Yes, that's all he thought about. And Ginger stamped her foot as if the very thought of him made her angry. And she went on. If I did not do exactly what he wanted, he would get put out and make me run round with that long rein in the training field till he had tired me out. I think he drank a good deal, and I am quite sure that the oftener he drank, the worse it was for me. One day he had worked me hard in every way he could, and when I lay down I was so tired and miserable and angry. It all seemed so hard. The next morning he came for me early and ran me round again for a long time. I had scarcely had an hour's rest when he came again for me with a saddle and bridle and a new kind of bit. I could never quite tell how it came about. He had only just mounted me on the training ground when something I did put him out of temper, and then he chucked me hard with the rein. The new bit was very painful, and I reared up suddenly, which angered him still more, and he began to flog me. I felt my whole spirit set against him, and I began to kick and plunge and rear as I had never done before, and we had a regular fight. For a long time, he stuck to the saddle and punished me cruelly with his whip and spurs, but my blood was thoroughly up and I cared for nothing he could do if only I could get him off. At last, after a terrible struggle, I threw him off backwards. I heard him fall heavily on the turf, and without looking behind me, I galloped off to the other end of the field. I turned round and saw my persecutor slowly rising from the ground and going into the stable. I stood under an oak tree and watched, but no one came to catch me. The time went on, and the sun was very hot. The flies swarmed round me and settled on my bleeding flanks where the spurs had dug in. I felt hungry, for I had not eaten since the early morning, but there was not enough grass in that meadow for a goose to live on. I wanted to lie down and rest, but with the saddle strapped tightly on, there was no comfort, and there was not a drop of water to drink. The afternoon wore on, and the sun got low. I saw the other colts led in, and I knew they were having a good feed. At last, just as the sun went down, I saw the old master come out with a sieve in his hand. He was a very fine old gentleman with quite white hair, but his voice was what I should know him by amongst a thousand. It was not high, nor yet low, but full and clear and kind, and when he gave orders, it was so steady and decided that everyone knew, both horses and men, that he expected to be obeyed. He came quietly along, now and then shaking the oats about that he had had in the sieve, and speaking cheerfully and gently to me. Come along, lassie, come along, lassie, come along, come along. I stood still and let him come up. He held the oats to me, and I began to eat without fear. His voice took all my fear away. He stood by, patting and stroking me while I was eating, and seeing the clots of blood on my side, he seemed very vexed. Poor lassie! That was a bad business, a bad business. Then he quietly took the rein and led me to the stable. 
Just at the door stood Samson. I laid my ears back and snapped at him. Stand back, said the master, and keep out of her way. You've done a bad day's work for this filly. He growled out something about a vicious brute. Hark ye, said the father, a bad-tempered man will never make a good-tempered horse. You've not learned your trade yet, Samson. Then he led me into my box, took off the saddle and bridle with his own hands, and tied me up. Then he called for a pail of warm water and a sponge, took off his coat, and while the stable man held the pail, he sponged my sides a good while, so tenderly that I was sure he knew how sore and bruised they were. Oh, my pretty one, he said, stand still, stand still. His very voice did me good, and the bathing was very comfortable. The skin was so broken at the corners of my mouth that I could not eat the hay. The stalks hurt me. He looked closely at it, shook his head, and told the man to fetch a good bran mash and put some meal into it. Oh, how good that mash was, and so soft and healing to my mouth. He stood by all the time I was eating, stroking me and talking to the man. If a high-mettled creature like this, said he, can't be broken in by fair means, she will never be good for anything. After that, he often came to see me, and when my mouth was healed, the other breaker, Job, they called him, went on training me. He was steady and thoughtful, and I soon learned what he wanted. Chapter 8. Ginger's Story Continued The next time that Ginger and I were together in the paddock, she told me about her first place. After my breaking in, she said, I was bought by a dealer to match another chestnut horse. For some weeks he drove us together, and then we were sold to a fashionable gentleman and were sent up to London. I had been driven with a check rein by the dealer, and I hated it worse than anything else. But in this place we were reined far tighter. The coachman and his master, thinking we looked more stylish so, we were often driven about in the park and other fashionable places. You who never had a check rein on don't know what it is, but I can tell you it is dreadful. I like to toss my head about and hold it as high as any horse, but fancy now yourself if you tossed your head up high and were obliged to hold it there, and that for hours together, not able to move it at all, except with a jerk still higher your neck aching till you did not know how to bear it. Besides that, to have two bits instead of one. And mine was a sharp one, and it hurt my tongue and my jaw, and the blood from my tongue colored the froth that kept flying from my lips as I chafed and fretted at the bits in rain. It was worse when we had to stand by the hour waiting for our mistress at some grand party or entertainment, and if I fretted or stamped with impatience, the whip was laid on. It was enough to drive one mad. Did not your master take any thought for you? I said. No, she said. He only cared to have a stylish turnout, as they call it. I think he knew very little about horses. He left that to his coachman who told him I had an irritable temper, that I had not been well broken to the check rein, but I should soon get used to it. But he was not the man to do it, for when I was in the stable, 
miserable, and angry. Instead of being soothed and quieted by kindness, I got only a surly word or a blow. If he had been civil, I would have tried to bear it. I was willing to work and ready to work hard too, but to be tormented for nothing but their fancies angered me. What right had they to make me suffer like that? Besides the soreness in my mouth and the pain in my neck, it always made my windpipe feel bad. And if I stopped there long, I know it would have spoiled my breathing, but I grew more and more restless and irritable. I could not help it. And I began to snap and kick when anyone came to harness me. For this, the groom beat me. And one day, as they had just buckled us into the carriage and were straining my head up with that rain, I began to plunge and kick with all my might. I soon broke a lot of harness and kicked myself clear. And so that was the end of that place. After this, I was sent to Tattersall's to be sold. Of course, I could not be warranted free from vice, so nothing was said about that. My handsome appearance and good paces soon brought a gentleman to bid for me, and I was bought by another dealer. He tried me in all kinds of ways and with different bits, and he soon found out what I could bear. At last he drove me quite without a check rein, and then sold me as a perfectly quiet horse to a gentleman in the country. He was a good master, and I was getting on very well, but his old groom left him, and a new one came. And this new man was as hard-tempered and hard-handed as Samson. He always spoke in a rough, impatient voice, and if I did not move in the stall the moment he wanted me, he would hit me above the hocks with his stable broom or the fork, whichever he might have in his hand. Everything he did was rough, and I began to hate him. He wanted to make me afraid of him, but I was too high-mettled for that. And one day, when he had aggravated me more than usual, I bit him, which, of course, put him in a great rage, and he began to hit me about the head with a riding whip. After that, he never dared come into my stall again. Either my heels or my teeth were ready for him, and he knew it. I was quite quiet with my master, but... Of course, he listened to what that man said, and so I was sold again. The same dealer heard of me and said he thought he knew one place where I should do well. "'Twas a pity, he said, that such a fine horse should go to the bad for want of a real good chance. And at the end of it was that I came here not long before you did." I had then made up my mind that men were my natural enemies and that I must defend myself. Of course, it's very different here, but who knows how long that will last. I wish I could think about things as you do, but I can't, after all that I've gone through. Well, I said, I think it would be a real shame if you were to bite or kick John or James. I don't mean to, she said. While they were good to me, I, I did bite James once pretty sharp, but John said, try her with kindness. And instead of punishing me as I expected, James came to me with his arm bound up and brought me a bran mash and stroked me. I have never snapped at him since, and, and I won't either. I was sorry for Ginger, but of course I knew very little then, and I thought most likely she made the worst of it. However, 
I found that as the weeks went on, she grew much more gentle and cheerful and had lost the watchful, defiant look that she used to turn on any strange person who came near her. And one day, James said, I do believe that mare is getting fond of me. She quite whinnied after me this morning when I had been rubbing her forehead. Aye, aye, Jim, tis the Birtwick balls, said John. She'll be as good as Black Beauty by and by. Kindness is all the physic she wants, poor thing. Master noticed the change, too, and one day, when he got out of the carriage and came to speak to us, as he often did, he stroked her beautiful neck. Well, my pretty one, well, how do things go with you now? You are a good bit happier than when you came to us, I think. She put her nose up to him in a friendly, trustful way, while he rubbed it gently. We shall make a cure of her, John, he said. Yes, sir, she's wonderfully improved. She's not the same creature that she was. It's the Birtwick ball, sir, said John, laughing. This was a little joke of John's. He used to say that at a regular course of the Birtwick horse balls would cure almost any vicious horse. These balls, he said, were made of patience and gentleness, firmness and petting, one pound of each to be mixed up with half a pint of common sense and given to the horse every day. Chapter 9. Merry Legs Mr. Bloomfield, the vicar, had a large family of boys and girls. Sometimes they used to come and play with Miss Jessie and Flora. One of the girls was as old as Miss Jessie, two of the boys were older, and there were several little ones. When they came, there was plenty of work for Merrylegs, for nothing pleased them so much as getting on him by turns and writing him all about the orchard and the home paddock, and this they would do by the hour together. One afternoon, he had been out with them a long time, and when James brought him in and put on his halter, he said, "'There, you rogue. Mind how you behave yourself, or we shall get into trouble.'" "'What have you been doing, Merrylegs?' I asked. "'Oh,' he said, tossing his little head, "'I have been only giving those young people a lesson.' They did not know when they had had enough, nor when I had had enough, so I just pitched them off backwards. That was the only thing they could understand. "'What?' I said. "'You threw the children off? "'I thought you did know better than that. "'Did you throw Miss Jessie or Miss Flora?' Oh, he looked very much offended and said, Of course not. I would not do such a thing for the best oats that ever came into the stable. Why, I am as careful of our young ladies as the master could be. And as for the little ones, it is I who teach them to ride. When they seem frightened or a little unsteady on my back, I go as smooth and as quiet as old pussy when she is after a bird. And when they are all right, I go on again faster, you see, just to accustom them to it. So don't you trouble yourself preaching to me. I am the best friend and the best riding master those children have. It is not them. It is the boys. Boys, he said, shaking his mane, are quite different. They must be broken in, as we are broken in when we are colts, and just be taught what's what. The other children had ridden me about for nearly two hours, and then the boys thought it was their turn. Well, and so it was, and I was quite agreeable. 
they rode me by turns, and I galloped them about, up and down the fields and all about the orchard, for a good hour. They had each cut a great hazel stick for a riding whip, and laid it on a little too hard. But I took it in good part, till at last I thought we had had enough, so I stopped two or three times by way of a hint. Boys, you see, think a horse or pony is like a steam engine or a thrashing machine and can go on as long and as fast as they please. They never think that a pony can get tired or have any feelings, so as the one who was whipping me could not understand, I just rose up on my hind legs and let him slip off behind. That was all. He mounted me again, and I did the same. Then the other boy got up, and as soon as he began to use his stick, I laid him on the grass, and so on, till they were all able to understand. And that was all. They were not bad boys. They don't wish to be cruel, and I like them very well. But, you see, I had to give them a lesson. When they brought me to James and told him, I think he was very angry to see such big sticks. He said they were only fit for drovers or gypsies, and not for young gentlemen. If I had been with you, said Ginger, I would have given those boys a good kick, and that would have given them a lesson. Well, no doubt you would, said Merrylegs, but then I am not quite such a fool, begging your pardon, as to anger our master or make James ashamed of me. Besides, those children are under my charge when they are riding. I tell you, they are entrusted to me. Why, only the other day I heard our master say to Mrs. Bloomfield, My dear madam, you need not be anxious about the children. My old merry legs will take as much care of them as you or I could. I assure you, I would not sell that pony for any money. He is so perfectly good-tempered and trustworthy. And do you think I am such an ungrateful brute as to forget all the kind treatment I have had here for five years and all the trust they place in me and turn vicious because a couple of ignorant boys used me badly? No, no. You never had a good place where they were kind to you, and so you don't know, and I'm sorry for you. But I can tell you, good places make good horses. I wouldn't vex our people for anything. I love them, I do, said Mary Legs, and he gave a low ho, ho, ho through his nose, as he used to do in the morning when he heard James's footstep at the door. Besides, he went on, if I took to kicking, where should I be? Why, sold off in a jiffy and no character, and I might find myself slaved about under a butcher's boy or worked to death at some seaside place where no one cared for me, except to find out how fast I could go, or be flogged along in some cart with three or four great men in it going out for a Sunday spree, as I have often seen in the place I lived in before I came here. No, he said, shaking his head, I hope I shall never come to that. That is all for tonight. Come back again for chapters 10, 11, and 12. Good night.